Please open up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The passage we're going to be studying a little bit today is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Although we're going to do things a little bit different starting up right now, is we're going to read through the entire book of, uh, no, I didn't say book, book, the entire chapter of Hebrews 11. I had you scared, especially since we're already running over time and don't have a lot left here. So we're going to be reading through the chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to do it a little bit different. I've got an audio clip. Uh, it's a dramatized version of Hebrews 11 that I've got for us to all live and listen to. And it just goes through the story of these, these uh, it's called the Hall of Faith. It's these great men and women of the Bible of Scripture who have ran after God. They've just pursued, you know, just they've lived their whole lives for the Lord. Not that they lived perfectly, but they're just, they're great examples. And Hebrews 11 just reminds us of the generations of, of past Christians who have lived faithfully to inspire us in our own run with the Lord. And so I invite you not just to, you know, zone out. I invite you to open up your Bibles and follow along in your own, uh, you know, translation of Scripture. It might differ a little bit there, but stay connected. And also... If after the whole service is done, and we've spent this six minutes long, we spent six whole minutes listening to just pure scripture. If you leave today and say, I didn't get anything out of the service today, and we spent six whole minutes of it just focused completely and wholly on the word of God, this one's on you. No, per, you know, no weight on me on my shoulders today. This one's on you. So we're just listening to straight up scripture here for a little bit, and then we're going to talk about it. So hopefully you can just sit back and enjoy. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All 
these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God 
had planned something better for us, so that only together, with us, would they be made perfect. I think it's appropriate we applaud scripture out of all things. I love this passage. I love Hebrews 11. It just kind of, it's one of those, it just gives you an overview of Scripture, you know, talking through the lives of men and women who have been changed uh, by, by the gospel, by the truth of God's redemptive story throughout history, especially towards the end there. It's like, you know, the, um, uh, those who were made strong out of weakness became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It's one of those Mufasa moments. You remember when you, back in Lion King when they say Mufasa and you just kind of like shiver and say, ooh, you know, Mufasa, say it again, ooh. You know, it's kind of one of those moments in Scripture where you just read it and, and it puts goosebumps on you because you, you're like, wow, God did amazing things in the lives of these men and women, and it's like, I want that kind of faith to be demonstrated in my own life, in the life of our church, in the lives of Calvary. That's what I want. I want us to be added to this list one day, you know, of of men and women of faith. And so it begs the question, how do we do that? How can we run this race? How can we live this life of faith as these men and women have in in us? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, gives us a huge answer to this. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which cleans so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How should we respond? The result in our lives should be that we run. We run the race. Since I don't see anybody actually running in here, I think, it's, I think we can all assume that this is an analogy. This is an analogy. It's, not, it's giving us a figurative language describing a spiritual reality that should be present in our lives which I'm exceedingly grateful for because I am not a runner. I am not a runner at all. Aaron talked about this last, uh, I think, last fall or, or last winter uh, with the teens a little bit and used Rowan as an illustration. Rowan's a runner, yet Rowan runs like marathon and stuff. I am not a runner. I remember two tests at Moody Bible Institute more than I remember all the other tests. It was physical fitness my freshman year when I had to run a mile and a half, and my physical fitness test my senior year where I had to run another mile and a half and compare the two to show people how bad I was at running. It it didn't improve at all. I do not like running. I'm not a runner. The only reason I have ever run outside of sports, I can run for hours if I'm playing a game, but the only time I've ran in my life outside of that was when I was dating Eunice. Yes, she's worth running for. <laughs> and I was pursuing her, you know, uh, both ways. You know, I was pursuing her relationally, and then I was also like, man, I want to try to impress her as much as I can. She ran cross-country in high school, and so I was just like, wow, I just got to start running so I can impress her. And I ran a mile. I'd run a mile, and I'm just kind of, yeah, I ran a mile today, Eunice, you know, when we're talking. She was not impressed at all, but I thought I was doing pretty good. Hey, she was impressed by other things, obviously. We're married. But running is not one of those analogies in scriptures that I connect with as well. I like, I like the walking verses. You know, we, we like talking to each other about how's your walk with the Lord, don't we? You know, that's what we say all the time. How's your walk with the Lord doing? How's your walk with God? That I can connect with. 
And it's a good thing. It's a scriptural thing. Today I was going to bash on walking, but then I started finding it all over Bible. So I was like, now nah, I can't bash on the walking side of things, which is good because I like walking. Psalm 23, great example. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There was a time to run. You'd think it would have been there, you know. So, but no, I walked through the valley of shadow of death. Genesis 5, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. 1 Kings 2, 3 through 4, keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commands, his ordinance, and it keeps going. So you see, and this is just a couple of examples where Scripture talks positively about walking. Yes, I'm glad. Yes, we should walk with the Lord. I'm not saying you shouldn't walk with the Lord. Don't tell Pastor Tom that when he gets back. You should walk with the Lord. But my goal this morning is get you asking a, di- a little different question to each other. It's to say, how's your run with the Lord going? How is your run with God? You see, there's positive traits of walking with the Lord. Uh, walking describes, uh, you know, something that you can do consistently, that you're doing it. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like a slow, steady, just, you know, you just keep going, you keep prodding at it, you know. It's almost second nature. How many of you got up this morning, uh, maybe some of the older folks might have a different answer to this, but how many of you got up this morning and actually had to think about walking? You know, I had to like, you had to like, oh, I got up and you're like, okay, so swing the leg out, get that leg down. Next leg out a bit. Okay, stand right, left, right, left. No, you don't have to do that because walking is second nature. Once you learn how to do it, you just do it without thinking. You just do it. The spiritual equivalent to walking, I think, would be, be loving. If we know God, we love God, and we love others. That's all the commands, uh, you know, summarized together. And as Christians, I think... When we are walking with the Lord, love becomes so second nature that we, it's not a bad question to say, God, how can I love someone today? But I think it becomes more like walking where it's just like you get up in the morning and you're not like, how am I going to get out and love somebody today? You just get up because it's second nature. It's your new nature that God has given you. You're a new creation. You get up out of bed and just by virtue of you being a, a, a new creation you know, uh, born in the nature of God, that you get up in the morning and you go and you love. You don't think about loving as Christians any more than we should have to think about walking as just people. It's what we do. It's who we are. That's what characterizes us and our lives as Christians. So walking is good. It's a great analogy to describe the spiritual life. But while there are traits to walking that, while physically done, are positive, when they transfer over to the spiritual side of life, I think they become problematic. Typically, walking is comfortable and easy. That's why you see me walking everywhere. You do not see me running. Scripture says, take up your cross. Wow. Man, that's not easy. It's a little different than walking, isn't it? Walking is relatively safe. That's why we tell our kids to walk across the street. But then we see in Scripture it says, Jesus said, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Man, that's not, that's not safe at all. Walking, you're able to stop and start without any great disadvantage. It doesn't affect your heart rate, it doesn't increase your risk of getting leg cramps or anything else. It's a lot easier just to sit down and I'll just take a break, you know, I'll just take a little break uh, from walking and, you know, and, and you can get back up and you can just start walking again anytime and it's not great, any great disadvantage at all. 
But when we read in Scripture, we see some, you know, uh, parables like the sower and the seeds where the gospel message of truth is laid in people's hearts and, it's, and that, that truth is taken out by, you know, the, by the birds. That seed is taken out. It's crushed by the cares and concerns of the world. You know, it's all these different things that when we're not intentional with our life, when we're just walking and not being intentional with it, things, it gets, that, that truth gets choked out of our lives. Walking doesn't always take much intentionality. You can walk anytime. It doesn't take a lot of training. But Scripture tells us we've got to put on the full armor of God. There's a lot of ways that running, we've got, we've got to run our walk with the Lord, if you will. There's a lot of reasons why we need to run our walk with the Lord. Another reason is walking is you can carry a big load and it doesn't affect you as much. We're going to talk about that a little bit later here. So walking is comfortable, easing, running is not. Running, walking is safe, running is not. Walking, you can stop and start without great disadvantage. Running, you can't. Uh, walking does not have to be done with great intentionality. Running does. Walking, we can carry big loads. Running, you cannot. Running is hard. And that's why Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 here, it tells us that we have to run with endurance. Run with endurance. Endurance means perseverance and patience. I like this word, long-suffering. Every step when I was ru- running was suffering. I couldn't do it for very long. First uh, Thessalonians 1-3 says uh, that the same term for endurance is used in this passage, and it says it's associated with the steadfastness of hope and refers to the quality of character which does not allow one to surrender. You, you're not allowed to surrender. That's the kind of endurance that we are to run our Christian faith in. We have to run with endurance because there are always plenty of reasons to stop. There's always plenty of reasons for stop. Me? I stopped because I got married. (laughs) I didn't have to run anymore. Sorry, Eunice. It's an awful illustration. I'm running in other ways, figuratively speaking, in our marriage. You know, I'm not totally sloughing off or anything, I don't think. But I think it's true of the Christian faith also, isn't it, that sometimes we stop running when we get married, the bride of Christ, hey, I'm in. Stop running. It's done. But there's all kinds of reasons for us to stop running. For the, the Hebrew Christians, the Christian Jews, they were encountering persecution. For us, reasons for us to stop running, I think sometimes it's disillusionment with Christians, disillusionment with the church organization, personal disillusionment. You know, it's like I've been running, I've been running, and I haven't seen my body change. I haven't seen anything transform. You know, it's like just that personal disillusionment of like I've been running after God. I haven't seen anything change. You know, that can cause us to stop running. Another reason to stop running. We're bombarded by the message that science has shown how things work and therefore there is no reason for God. That's a reason for a lot of people to stop running. My life isn't going the way I wanted. Relationships, health, occupationally, debt. I'm in debt. I'm in divorce. Whatever. All there's all these things. Life happens, and they're all reasons to stop. And that's why I love looking back at these examples of faith in Hebrews 11. Is because every single one of them, they are great men and women of the faith because they endured. Because they weren't. They just didn't live the perfect Christian life where it was easy. They endured hardship in every single case that you look at. You're just like, wow. They they were overcomers. They were runners that endured. Abel, he had a bad family relationship, really bad. Guy killed him. His brother, own brother, killed him. 
but he was a man of faith. Enoch, 365 years old, old enough to surely see the moral decline in the culture because of sin. Doesn't that discourage us a lot of times? Doesn't that cause us to stop wanting to run because we're like, look around us. Look at the sin. What's the point? We just get discouraged. I'm just going to sit down. I can't make any difference. But Enoch walked with the Lord for 365 years. And that generation that he saw in the moral decline led up to the time of Noah where God had to totally start fresh and new because the sin was so bad and pervasive. Do you think he had a reason to stop? Yeah. Noah was ridiculed for obeying God. Did he have reason to stop? Yeah. He saw most of his relatives and friends die in their sins. Did he have reasons to stop running? Yes. Abraham, it just keeps going, left his home, lived in tents in a foreign land. Did he have reason to stop? Absolutely. Sarah, pain of being childless her whole life. And then at the old age, God says, I'm going to give you a son. Do you think she stopped and said, God, couldn't you have done this a long time ago? Do you think she questioned God's timing in her life? There's not only the pain in childbirth, but pain in being old and having a child. You know, it's just compounded. God, why? Timing is awful. Do you think that might have been a reason to stop for her? Joseph, how much bad luck can a God follower take? Moses, why did, he have to, why did he leave the riches of Egypt and his position there to shepherd a bipolar nation? Do you think he had reason to stop? Absolutely. All of them have reasons to stop, and yet they ran. How do we run with endurance like the men and women of Hebrews 11? And I've got a really cruise here. Perspective. No, we are part of something so much bigger than ourselves. And it says this twice in Hebrews 11, and I hope you, I hope you see this. I hope you caught it when you read it. It says in Hebrews eleven thirteen, these all died in faith. And this is the clincher. Not having received the things promised. That is a huge reason to stop. God, you promised me this, and it never came true in my life. That's reason to stop, isn't it? Isn't it? If life was about them, then this would be a good reason to give up and throw in the towel. And today this is a a big enough reason for a lot of us to stop running. I didn't get this. I didn't get that. I've got this problem. I've got that problem. God let me down. Grumbling and complaining like the Israelites. It's better without God. Better in another church. It's always better somewhere else. A microwave society, if you will. I want it warm, and I want it in 30 seconds. Give it to me now. Give it to me now. But if it's about you or me, then our understanding of God's goodness, grace, and mercy is vastly reduced to only how it has been demonstrated in your life. I don't know if that made sense. But sometimes we're so focused and consumed on what God is doing within our lifetimes, we totally miss out on the picture of God's redemptive plan throughout the course of history. That's what's amazing about Hebrews 11 is we see God's faithfulness work through all generations, not just me and my life. It says these people, you know, received these promises, but they, they, they had the promise, but they never saw them. Did that stop them? No, they greeted it as from far off. They saw their position in a race that God had called them to run. And even though they didn't see the finish line, they continued to race. If life is all about you, you will always be disappointed. But if life is about something bigger than me and you, 
If it's about the collective story of redemption that God is working throughout the course of history, then I say, Lord, let me play my part. Let me run my race as long as I can run it. I want to paint you a little bit, a little picture here because it says there's a great cloud of witnesses. It can be a great cloud because it is numerically great, and it can be witnesses because they're there. It's kind of talking about a, a race. It's almost like they're spectators. There's a lot of people, and they are witnessing almost like spectators, but this picture that Scripture is describing here in Hebrews 12 is so much cooler than, than what we see at first reading. These, the, the spectators, the witnesses in this great cloud of witnesses are not just there watching. They're not just there watching like, like parents or, you know, be like, oh, yay, go Charlie, go Johnny, however you do. And they're not just there, you know, clapping because they're spectators. They're there because they are runners. There are people who have come before us who have ran a race. Not just a race that's similar to our race. They are running in the same exact race that you and I are running today. One of the commentators I was reading on this passage said, this is not just any race, this is a relay race. And this is where it starts getting powerful, is when we start seeing our role in God's redemptive plan throughout history, we stop looking at just how God is working and moving in our lives. It broadens up our perspective and saying, how is God in work, working in the world, and how is he going to use me to, to run that race in the world, no matter what's going on? This is a relay race. And the people of these other generations, they kept running and they kept running and they kept running and they came to the end of their lives and they could run no more. And they passed on that baton to the next generation who kept running and running. The race is content. It's the longest race of, you know, throughout history. And it just keeps going and going and going and passing. And sometimes I, I think you know, using that illustration of a, of a relay race, you know, between generations, it just seems like there's so much tension. The, one of the most dangerous points in time in a relay race is not just the running, it's the time that it, when it's, it's time to hand off the baton to the next generation, isn't it? When you're handing off that baton to that next person. That time when, you know, the person who has been running faithfully for that whole time as hard as they could, and they're getting close, and they have to run, and they have to match their stride with that next person who, for that short period of time, are overlapping in their race. They're overlapping, and they have to be in perfect stride so that they can hand off that baton. If the runner who is coming next starts taking off too quickly, they miss the baton. If the runner who has the baton starts giving up and slackening off and just is like, I'm too weary, I can't go on, if they stop, if they don't endure, that baton is not passed. we got to run and step with the generations that God has in our church. Like King David said in the Psalms, if I can find it, Psalm 71 and 18, he says, Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. I love that attitude. We are in a race. We are in a race together. We are in a race uh, that is God's redemptive plan throughout history, and that gives us perspective on life. It gives us perspective to battle sin. One of the things that um, when, when I'm hiking or walking, you know, I'll gladly put on a, a, a backpack. You know, I'll gladly fill it up with tons of water bottles. I'll gladly fill it up with Snickers and all those other things to balance out the healthy snacks that Eunice brings along. You know, it's like I'm gladly, like, putting on weight, you know, and it's just because I'm walking. When you're walking, extra weight doesn't matter at all. 
But when you're running, instead of talking in terms of pounds, you're talking about in terms of ounces. When we're running the race that God has set before us, you know, sometimes I feel like we're, like all, we're always like consumed with battling sin. It's so hard to stop sinning. Why is it hard to stop sinning? Sometimes it's because we're not running. When we find ourselves running the race God has put before us, when we're like taking off and running as fast as we can, all of a sudden it's like I have a new perspective on that backpack. I hate it. I love Snickers normally, but if I'm running, that's my 10 pounds of Snickers aren't going to be doing me any good. I'm going to hate it. It does me no good. It's going to be a burden. It's going to be a weight. The, uh, the term used here in Scripture talking about the weight is actually like a tumor. It's just useless weight dragging you down. And sometimes our battle with sin, when we're just battling with sin, we think life is just consumed with rooting out sin out of our lives. But when we've, I think sometimes we get so consumed with that, we stop running the race. God says run the race, and we start running the race, we find just our nature is different. We're no longer just walkers, we're runners, and weight matters. We're like, no, I can't keep doing this. This is holding me down. This is making it harder. This is worse. When we run our, when we run our race with perspective, when we're pursuing God's will for our life, we want nothing more than to see sin slough off our life, to cast it away, to be done with it. It's not that it won't just stop being a battle, but all of a sudden it's one of those things of great joy just being, like in the Chicago Marathon, I was always amazed at Moody, the Chicago Marathon comes right next to our school and I'd watch, and there's these runners who have like all kinds of expensive jackets and stuff that they wear, and as they're running and it's getting hotter throughout the day, they're throwing these like $100 shirts and clothes, and I'm like, hey, you know, trying to grab them up, and everybody's out there trying to grab stuff. I know it's probably illegal, but, you know, it's like people are grabbing stuff, but they're just like, it doesn't matter. They throw stuff. They're casting it off because they don't care because what matters more than anything, anything else is finishing the race. Any excess weight doesn't matter. We are foreigners and aliens in another land. Abraham lived in a tent as, a, as an alien in that foreign land. We are in foreign land. This world is not our home. How does that affect the way that we live our lives? We don't just walk with the Lord. We run with the Lord. Real quick, we're way over time here, and I apologize, but I don't want to leave this out because I think it's really cool, is that this passage talks about Jesus, and it says that Jesus, looking to Jesus, our perspective is, we're not watching the, the great cloud of witnesses. It's, that's not where our focus is. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The cool thing about this is going with that same racing theme. Uh, another translation would say Jesus is the beginner and the finisher of our faith. Jesus began our race. And Jesus is finishing our race. And then, not that it doesn't matter who, you know, what we do in, in between is kind of insignificant because it's Jesus who wins the battle. Jesus who has won the war. You know, it, almost, it really doesn't matter because our strongest man is coming on the anchor leg and it's Jesus Christ. So we run our race. We cheer on those who come after us. We, we you know, pass the baton so ever carefully because we as a younger generation and, a, and as older generations have to walk in stride with each other to pass it effectively so that God can be glor- glorified in and through our lives. So I pray in closing that the church is a place where we no longer discourage running with our kids in the hallways, but the church is a place that we encourage our kids and our seniors to run with the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father God, I thank you so much for this day, for this time that we've been able to spend, be encouraged by many of our our graduates who are running after you. 
And so, Lord, I just pray that you will be with us all as, as we struggle sometimes with, in our Christian walk. God, help us to change our perspective and see how running with the Lord just helps us uh, just keep a, a new perspective. It helps give us a, a new perspective on, on life and how we live it and, and how to deal with sin, Lord. Just pray that you will help us to, to root sin out of our lives so that we can run effectively for you. And be faithful like King David prayed at the end of his life. Lord, let me not pass away until I have told of your wondrous deeds to the next generation, God. May that be our heartbeat as well. May we run our race in such a way that it gives glory to you. And so we just thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.